Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. I'm Greg Dalton, and today on Climate One, our topic is the international politics of carbon pollution. Our guest is Todd Stern, America's top climate diplomat. Five years ago, efforts to cut a global deal on climate protection crumbled at a United Nations summit in Copenhagen. Next year, the heads of nearly 200 countries will try again in Paris. Cheerleaders say an international agreement is necessary to get countries moving on stabilizing the climate that supports our economy and our quality of life. Skeptics say 200 countries will never reach a deal with teeth. Over the next hour, we will talk about the technologies, policies, and cultural dimensions, and others of trying to negotiate a cleaner brand of capitalism. We'll also touch on what China and India and other countries are doing to clean up their economies. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have with us Todd Stern, United States Special Envoy for Climate Change. He served in the White House under President Clinton for six years and was a senior negotiator on the Kyoto Protocol. Please welcome him to the Climate One. So Todd Stern, welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Greg. So we're seeing lots of severe weather increasing around the world. 2014 is a, an election year in a lot of countries, an uh, important year for climate negotiations. Tell us where we are in this moment in time on climate negotiations with all this wild weather going on and people realizing that climate might be something that's real. Yeah, oh, thanks very much. I'm uh, very happy to be here. Um, we are right in the middle of a four-year process uh, in the negotiations that was uh, started at the Durban climate meeting at the end of 2011. Uh, and at that time, uh, among other things, the, uh, these big meetings are called COPs, the Conference of the Parties, so that was, uh, that was the COP in, in South Africa. And there was a decision to uh, start a new negotiation that would cover the period uh, of the 2020s, that, that, that would be a, a post-2020 uh, focus, uh, in which the parties would negotiate an agreement, legal in some way, uh, not clear uh, what the exact legal form would be, but that it was supposed to be a, a, a legal agreement of, of some fashion, and applicable to all parties, which was, uh, which was very important. 
Kyoto was effectively applicable just to the developed. So that was 2011. It was supposed to, the agreement was supposed to be uh, finished in 2015. As it turns out, the big climate meeting at the end of 2015 is going to be in Paris. So we sit right in the middle of that process uh, about halfway through, uh, and I think that there has been some good progress made, and um, these negotiations are always difficult. And I believe the State Department recently put forward some suggestions for a durable and ambitious deal. So explain what that means, um, durable and ambitious. Yeah. So, well, ambition is the, is the buzzword in, in climate negotiations that just means that, that countries are promising to, uh, to do a lot with respect to reducing their emissions. Ambition is an absolute critical part of, uh, of any climate agreement. So, yes, we want it to be ambitious, uh, and that starts, starts with everybody, but most certainly includes the United States. And durable uh, means, I would, actually, there's another word I would add. I would say ambitious, inclusive, and durable. Inclusive gets back to that idea of applicable to all that I was talking about. We have to get all of the, all of the main players, uh, even players who are less than main, uh, to be part of the agreement, to agree to take action, uh, and so forth. And durable, uh, you know, we're looking to have an agreement where we don't go through this whole process every five years, or really even every ten years if we can. We would like to see an agreement that sets out a framework that all countries are part of, that, uh, that sets up processes uh, to every X number of years, let's say every five years, if we say just for the sake of argument, because we don't actually know what the end point is going to be for this one, but let's say that we're making commitments to 2030 now, uh, you'd have an agreement that would say each five years or conceivably each 10 years, but probably more like each five countries would put in new, new commitments, uh, and that you would have, have provisions in there about transparency about reporting on what countries do and about review, about accounting for emissions and so forth, that you wouldn't keep renegotiating. You would have an agreement that sets that out and that lasts for a long time. Whether we get that or not, I don't know, but that's. But if you ask what the United States is interested in, that's what we want, ambitious, inclusive, and durable. And inclusive, I think you're really talking about China, India, the big uh, emerging economies, which were in a separate class at the end of the Cold War when this construct was first conceived. Now they are the biggest, well, China is the largest current emitter. Uh, so is China on board to be part of a legally binding uh, treaty? Well, I, I was about to say yes until you said legally binding treaty. So China is... <laughs> China, I think China and other countries uh, are on board to, uh, to be part of this new agreement. Now, so let me just stop you for a second on the legally binding. What was agreed to in Durban uh, with respect to the legal nature of it is, a, is a, I'm going I'm to tell you what the, what the exact words are because they're fairly convoluted, but you, you'll, you'll, you'll see that, there's, that it's not exactly clear how this is going to work. But the agreement was to negotiate a protocol another legal instrument, or an agreed outcome with legal force. Okay. As you can imagine, those were closely, carefully negotiated words, particularly that last little clause, which was, uh, which was done in a huge and growing, sort of started small, but sort of mushroomed out um, huddle on the floor of the plenary in the middle of the night on the last day, because basically all countries were, were ready to accept just the first two pieces except India. And so language had to be found, uh, and we were right in the middle of that, actually helped to find the language that, uh, that, that got the deal done. But it, it, is, it is an agreement that's going to have legal force, that's going to be legal in some fashion, 
it might be legally binding in every respect, or it might be uh, it might be something somewhat different from that. And countries have put forth different ideas on that, actually. But I, yes, I, to, to get back to your basic question, uh, I think that I think China and, and other countries are conceptually on board uh, with doing an agreement. But it's you know there are a lot of devils. Uh, in a lot of details. Sounds like, yeah, some lawyers are going to be kept busy by all of that. But one other question is whether this needs to go through Congress, or can this be done in a way that doesn't have to be ratified by Congress? The answer I always give to that question is that, uh, that any agreement that we do that requires um, Senate ratification will be taken to the Senate for ratification. <laughs> but, uh, but it all depends on what the nature of the agreement is. So the agreement that we did in uh, the Copenhagen Accord in Copenhagen and then the, the essentially expanded version of that that was done in Cancun by their nature. They're not, they were not the sort of things that needed to be taken to Congress. So it's all, it all depends on the nature of it. Uh, and on uh, what elements of the agreement are uh, legally binding and what aren't. So, yes, we will if that's the nature of the agreement, and if it's not, then, of course, we won't. But is, is it your intention to design something that doesn't need to get through Congress? Because no, right now no. the time of day couldn't get through Congress. No, so. it's, it's, it's our intention to negotiate an effective uh, and good agreement that uh, certainly um, from the point of view in, of the United States with respect to our interests, but also with respect to, uh, to the whole world and with respect to, uh, again, to, to get an agreement that, that can draw in the participation of all, of all of the major players. So, no, I, we don't have any, any specific uh, intention uh, in, in, in that regard, but we just want an agreement that, that can work and that's strong and good and that people can be part of. Because President Obama recently have said he's basically going to go around Congress, use executive action, but this is not part of that sort of going around Congress, executive action, do whatever he can with his I, own power. Well, so I, I, I wouldn't exactly characterize what the president said um, that way. I think what the president said is he was looking for Congress to act. If Congress wasn't going to act, it's not so much that he was going to go around Congress. He was going to use authorities that he had. And don't forget, with, with respect to the most important of those authorities, look, look at the biggest single thing in the president's very strong climate action plan uh, are probably the new regulations that EPA is working on with respect to uh, power plants. It's not that we're not going around Congress on that, and the president's not just using his pure executive authority of the kind that you would use if you were doing an executive order, for example, if the president was doing an executive order. He's relying on congressional previously passed law, the Clean Air Act, which Congress mm -hmm. passed, and relying on the interpretation of a Clean Air Act by the Supreme Court. So you know, that's sort of what the president is doing with respect to domestic action. But we're, 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 not, we're not in a going around Congress mode. And on domestic action, when you're talking to negotiators from other countries, yeah. often, uh, of course, the U.S. is the largest historic emitter. There was some press reports in the last couple of months about the 20 largest emitters. There's like a lot of the uh, emissions have come from a handful, a dozen or so entities. Uh, what do countries say about, is the U.S. doing enough? Does, has the U.S. established climate leadership, climate credibility uh, on this issue when we yeah. have been the biggest creators of this problem? Right. The reception that I have, uh, that I have seen and the uh, kind of discussions that I've had uh, since the president's uh, speech uh, and announcement of, of his climate action plan uh, has been very, very good. I think, the, I think actually the standing of the U.S. Uh, internationally with respect to what we're doing is, uh, is quite good right now. And, uh, and I've heard that from 
really from any number of countries, including some countries who have not been hesitant to be critical in the past. So, um, and, and look, everybody's got to do more. There is a lot to do, and this is a huge challenge. So everybody's got to do more. But yeah, the, I think the, the short answer is um, that uh, that we are in. Uh, the, I think we're in the best standing we've been in in a while. And what exactly? So you're saying the U.S. has become more of a climate leader. It's earned some of that. And aside from the coal regulations, regulations. Well, we've been a climate leader internationally. I was just talking domestically. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so what particularly has the U.S. done? Because some climate advocates would say the U.S. is not a leader. Well, I, I think that, uh, that the, the president's, I mean, it's, got, it's, a, it's a broad-based uh, plan. And, it, uh, and as I said, the, I think the, the sort of single most important element of it uh, is, are the power plant regulations. But it also has to do with, the, I think, the standards that the president already put in place back in, uh, I think, announced in, in, uh, in 2009, I think, uh, for, uh, for the broad vehicle fleet are uh, hugely ambitious. And basically took our, is in the process of taking our vehicle fleet from a 27 miles per gallon, a number which where it had basically been stalled out for about 20 years, and it's going to 54. I mean, that's a that's a huge that's a huge move for about a third of uh, for the transportation sector, which is about a third of our emissions. Um, uh, moving in the power sector, we, we've we've done a whole lot, and there's more in the president's uh, plan about uh, uh, appliance standards in the with respect to buildings. Basically, everything that makes buildings work, heating and cooling, and, and all the appliances within buildings uh, have all been subject. Uh, to um, significant uh, new standards, uh, and uh, there's there's um, there are provisions in there about uh, producing uh, renewable energy on, on federal lands. There's there's really dozens of, of uh, elements in this plan. So I no, I think it's I think in terms of what a president can do when you have a Congress that is not prepared to act, very strong. A few hours ago, uh, California Senator Barbara Boxer was sitting in, in this chair, and she talked about uh, Keystone Pipeline as a health issue. Uh, right now up the street, billionaire Tom Steyer has Harry Reid and other senators at his house talking about Keystone. Uh, how do you think Keystone will affect U- U.S. credibility abroad if it goes ahead with Keystone as looks likely? Uh, will that affect uh, U.S. stature or on the kind of climate leadership you're talking about? I, I don't know where Keystone's going to come out. Uh, I can tell you where Keystone is in the process. Um, there was a long period of time, which just ended very recently, uh, where an environmental impact statement was done, and then a supplemental environmental impact statement was done. Uh, all of that uh, runs through one kind of particular part uh, of the State Department, and uh, that's done now. So it goes to the next stage, which is, uh, which, which is, which is where a national interest determination needs to get made. That's delegated by the president to the secretary of state, uh, and that process will uh, will get going. And I'm, but I, I'm not going to speculate on which way it's going to go because I, I I honestly don't know. If it's approved, will your job be harder? I'm I'm not going to engage in hypotheticals. There's <laughs> <laughs> so much fun. <laughs> um, the Keystone Pipeline is linked to a, a change, a sea change in which the U.S. and uh, partly linked to a sea change in which the U.S. is becoming a large energy producer. 
Uh, the International Energy Agency says the U.S. will be perhaps the largest oil producer, uh, surpassing Russia before too long. How is that going to affect the international politics of this, where the U.S. has traditionally been the largest consumer? I don't know many people who would have predicted that we'd be the largest uh, many, a few years ago. The U.S. would be such a large supplier. How does that change the oil equation internationally with climate? I think if, if you step back and think about what uh, what needs to be done with respect to climate change uh, over time and where we need to be trying to push things uh, you know, now, fundamentally, there needs to be a transformation of the energy base of our economy to much less reliance on coal and oil in particular. That's, I mean, over, over this isn't going to happen tomorrow, but over a period of time, uh, that's where things need to go. And so that's why uh, renewable energy and, uh, and energy efficiency uh, alternatives, that's why natural gas, at least as a, as a, uh, as a transitional fuel, uh, is important as well. So clearly that's what needs to happen. Now, oil is still going to be around for mm-hmm. quite some time. While oil is around, is it a useful thing to be able to, to produce the oil here rather than just import it for national security and other reasons? Probably yes. I don't think the fact that we, that we can produce uh, a bigger chunk of the oil that we use is in any sense uh, a negative with regard to climate change. The use of oil in general, you know, we, we've got to reduce significantly over time. But, uh, but, um, but Climate doesn't care where it comes from or where it's burned. Not fundamentally. Um, and, uh, you know, would, would I rather have oil that, that we produce here rather than to have to buy it in some of the places that, that we have to buy it? Sure. And moving away from oil, the, the G20 a few years ago pledged to reduce uh, subsidies for fossil fuels. Is that happening? Is, by some estimates, half a trillion dollars. Nicholas Stern was here mm-hmm. recently to talk about direct and indirect subsidies. That's a lot of money. Is that, are those going down? Is that in your purview? To, it, to... It, it's, um, it's a huge amount of money, um, and you know I've I've heard numbers that high or even higher in terms of uh, of how much uh, money is devoted to fossil fuel subsidies around the world. And it's important to note that a pretty small percentage of that is really directed to poor people. So, you know, so you think well, fossil fuel subsidies, but you need to subsidize poor people to be able to get you know kerosene or fuel or whatever. Yes, but. I don't remember what the exact number is, but I think it's in the vicinity of 15% or so that is devoted really to, to taking care of poor people who could be taken care of in a different way, right? You could, you could, you could have income transfers that, that you, didn't, you, don't, you don't need the fossil fuel subsidies. The fossil fuel subsidy agreement in the G20 uh, in, uh, I think it was 2009, was, was, was driven by the U.S. I mean, that was really a U.S. initiative. Uh, so we uh, we are 100% behind it. We push it hard, but it's not happening uh, in terms of actual uh, results. Aren't really happening yet uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, there's a, there's a, a great deal of resistance in, from countries who agreed to it, and you know we have our own problems again because uh, because getting rid of a lot of these things um, requires Congress. And they, the companies like it, and a lot of the members of Congress like it. Exactly. Um, another aspect of this is, is money flows from developed countries to developing countries. Yeah. In 2009, the United States pledged, I believe it was $10 billion a year. Uh, now there's a green climate fund set up in Korea. It has very little or no money. 
So tell us about how rich countries can flow uh, direct funds to developing countries, which developing countries say, hey, we need money to fix this problem. Right, right. So, um, so this is a big issue in the negotiations. Um, and there were two pledges made in, in, in Copenhagen. The first was, uh, it wasn't just a US pledge, but, but all the developed countries agreed as something that was referred to as fast start financing to uh, produce a collective amount of more or less approximately $30 billion over a three-year period from all the developed countries uh, together. And this was understood to be essentially public money from public government coffers. And, uh, and we did that. I mean, the developed countries produced that funding for the U.S., it was about seven and a half billion dollars over that three-year period, and you know this was these were not an easy they weren't easy budget times then, and they're not easy budget times now. There was also an agreement by the developed countries to mobilize from all sources, public, private, carbon markets, any sources, a uh, hundred billion dollars a year collectively by 2020. So the, the fast start piece is done. We're continuing to, uh, to provide uh, funding kind of consistent with what we did in Fast Start on a year-by-year basis, the U.S. is. Uh, How much money is that? Well, so that was about $2.5 billion a year from okay. the U.S. Um, and, uh, and that includes, that in, that, that there's diff- sort of different flavors of money there. That includes the appropriated money. That includes money that, that our development finance uh, uh, corporation uh, OPEC provides and so forth. Uh, we are also engaged, and we are actually playing a, a, a quite active role with other developed con- countries to try to coordinate what we're doing uh, in the effort to, uh, to to mobilize large amounts of money, and, and in this case, to use public funds to leverage larger amounts of private funding. So, uh, in, in the end of the day, a very significant amount of the hundred will have to come from. Private. It's not that it's purely private. It's think of um, of a private investment that's made possible by risk guar- risk insurance guarantees that that OPIC provides, or or counterpart in, in France or the UK or, or whatever. So anyway, it, it, it is important, uh, and we are working at it hard. Um, and at the end of the day, isn't it private markets and private capital that has to move? I mean, I've read something absolutely. that. Actually, the money that's moved to, to protect forests in developing countries is already a lot larger from, from private sources than from government sources because governments don't have enough money. No, that's, that, that's absolutely true. And in the, the amount of capital in the capital market is absolutely vast. So you, what you're really trying to do is, uh, is provide uh, incentives to get a, essentially a, a, a risk and return ratio that is attractive enough to, to private investors to move a little bit of that. Uh, vast pool into uh, into to these purposes. Uh, recently interviewed someone from Microsoft. They have an internal price on carbon. They're doing offsets in the forest. And other companies are doing that. That not enough. I w- want to know uh, what technologies do you see that are promising, that are exciting. I know you're not a technology specialist, you're yeah. a negotiator, but what technologies area do you see as being you're here in Silicon Valley key to to really moving the, this forward and bending the carbon curve? Well, I think there are uh, a number, and there's probably a number that you know that we don't know about yet that somebody is dreaming up. So, um, uh, if you think about these in terms of the the, the big sectors, uh, transportation, uh, 
you have uh, a, a very important technological thing going on right now uh, in um, not too far from here uh, with uh, electric cars, right? I mean, the... the, the um, Some people probably came here today. Anyone come here today in your Tesla? One, okay. Um, so, you know, that's uh, that the electrification of the fleet, of the, the auto fleet, if that can happen, would be a big, big deal, particularly if it can then be combined with the uh, reduction in the um, CO2 intensity of, of the power supply. So less use of coal, more use of, in, in some cases, natural gas, but, but even, even better um, if you can get uh, more and more renewables into the mix. And, you know, and that's, that's happening. So solar is obviously um, the, the, the cost differential between, between conventional fuel and solar has dropped just dramatically over recent years. Um, there are uh, innovative uh, companies who are getting um, solar panels on people's roofs without any upfront cost, for example, which so greatly expanding uh, the reach uh, of, of that kind of thing. Um, wind is, uh, is actually pretty developed. There's all sorts of further work being done on things like, uh, like battery storage. You know, when you have solar and wind, they're good when the sun shines and the wind blows, but you also want to be able to, to, to store power so that you can get energy even when that's not happening. So there's, there's a tremendous amount of, uh, of interesting stuff going on. More electric cars. Um, winners and losers. There will be some winners in a warmer world, a disrupted world. Canada often comes to mind. Resources will be accessible. It can soon be growing corn in Canada, which is a little strange, but uh, certainly some losers in the Pacific Island states. So when you travel and uh, negotiate with all these countries, how do you see the winners and losers shaping up? You know, I don't think about it too much in terms of winners. There, I mean, you're right that there will be some, uh, some benefits in, uh, in a few places. But I think that you're talking about, uh, if, if we don't take the kind of action that we need to take, you're talking about the risk of a fundamentally disrupted world. Certainly, you know, we're not all, you know, if, if, you're, in, if you're a low-lying island, you've got a, you know, a huge, more existential problem. But, but the sorts of extreme weather that we're, that, that we're seeing all over the world, that we've been seeing now for any number of years, um, the, uh, the, the risk to the food supply, uh, the risk of extreme uh, events, whether droughts or floods or storms, um, is serious enough that I think they're not going to be that many countries who you would actually look at and say, well, they, they may not like bandits. I mean, it, it's not going to be good. Some people will be less worse off or less bad. Yeah, I, that, no yeah, bad, I, I, right? don't, I really don't think people look at it very much, uh, certainly not in the, you know, in, my, in, in the world that I inhabit as, uh, as there's kind of clear winners and clear losers. One striking example that some people know about from the film Island President is President Nasheed uh, from the Maldives. Uh, he uh, was in New York on the David Letterman show uh, in 2012 uh, and said, look, what happens in the Maldives could happen here in Manhattan. Then came Hurricane Superstorm Sandy, right. very prescient. Uh, so I'd like to, is there a moral dimension to this in terms of some countries are just going to go away pretty soon? Um, well, I think sure there is. Um, you know, and I, I don't, I mean... I don't know how soon soon is, but but there certainly are uh, our countries. Uh, islands are, uh, are are the ones that the people focus on the most readily, and there aren't 
large numbers of islands in this in this position, but there's a number of them that uh, that are so low lying that that over time and, I, and and not a huge amount of time uh, they're going to be they're going to be threatened uh, and. So I, sure, I think that there's a moral dimension to it, but uh, but it's not but it's not confined to the islands. I mean, if you're you know if you're Bangladesh and you have like large numbers of people living within a short uh, short distance from a low lying coast, you've got a huge problem too. And there's and there's many countries that are, that have problems like that. Uh, you mentioned the the talks in South Africa. We interviewed uh, a college student who went there and actually spoke up during during one of your talks. Uh, Abigail Bora, a student from uh, Middlebury College, and I want to share this clip. Of that, let's let's if we can share that clip, and then I want to ask you two questions about it. So that's uh, Middlebury College student Abigail Bora at the United Nations Climate Talks in South Africa a couple of years ago. Not to make you uncomfortable, just ask a question. Number one, a lot of people in that room clapped when she spoke up, and those huh. were diplomats in that room. So what do you make of that, that reaction to her saying, it's not happening fast enough? Well, I think a lot of people feel it's not happening fast enough, and I, I you know, I sympathize with that. I mean, it, it's the um, no. I, I mean, you I, have some I, young people here. You're not. You're not no, no. Look, I, I, I mean, I, I, I think that that's. I think it's true. I think it's true that it's not happening fast enough. Um, I, you know, I think that it's not easy to move the system, right? So uh, it's not easy to move the system domestically. And let me say. Just as a, as a, you know, as a, as a uh, kind of observation, the most important thing that that can be done with respect to taking action on climate change needs to happen at the national level. The international agreement is important. I mean, that's what I spend my time doing. I, I, you know, I wouldn't do it if I didn't think it was important. But, but, uh, but action, real action gets driven at the national level. The international agreement stitches countries together and gives countries confidence that others are also acting uh, and, and so forth. So it's, it's got a real role. But, but So it's difficult at the national level, as, as we've seen, as we've already talked about with respect to uh, challenges with Congress. Uh, and it's very difficult at the international level for, you know, for a whole host of reasons. So, uh, so yes, I think progress is being made. Is, and I don't think progress, I, I, I agree, I don't think progress would be made quickly enough. If you're just joining us on the radio, our guest today at Climate One is Todd Stern, United States Special Envoy for Climate Change. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, you talk about action at the national level is what matters. What about the subnational level? Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, Governor Certainly. Brown, Governor Schwarzenegger has done a lot with China, regions trying yeah. to to make things happen at, at that level, states and regions. Oh, ab absolutely. I actually didn't mean national as distinguished from subnational. I was talking about national uh -huh. as distinguished just from focusing on, on international negotiations. No, I, I think that, um, look, first of all, 
it is often true in, in areas that touch the environment that you know what, what happens in the country starts in California. So California's got a wonderful tradition in that regard. And, uh, and what California is doing, uh, and what Governor Brown and, and, uh, and the state have been doing uh, with respect to essentially the cap and trade program here and a whole host of other uh, laws and regulations respecting climate change is terrific. Uh, and California is not alone. There's a lot of states who have portfolio standards that require a certain amount of uh, renewable energy in their power uh, systems. Uh, you have the Northeast governors and the Reggie group that, uh, that, that have a trading program of their own. Uh, and, uh, and a lot of mayors uh, who are, uh, are, uh, are acting. So all of that, I think, is really important. And by the way, it sometimes has an international dimension, too. You'll see cities, you see U.S. cities paired up with Chinese cities, for example. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I, I, I saw that, that, uh, that California has just recently um, uh, linked up its system with Quebec um, and, uh, and also has a lot of uh, interaction with, uh, with China, just as another example. So, you know, I, subnational, very important. California and China also doing some things on cap and yeah, trade, yeah. sharing technical knowledge, right. that sort of thing. Right. It's not, not political. But China's key to all this. People will, certainly will have some questions about China. Uh, could the U.S. and China do a bilateral deal, like in the old days when Reagan and Gorbachev got together? Yet there are other countries with nuclear powers, but two big c countries coming together and do a significant deal. There's been some fair amount of movement recently on China. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't say that the U.S. and China will go off and kind of do a soup to nuts climate deal. Uh, there's not going to be, a, you know, a G2, and I think China wouldn't want to do that, and I think other countries, uh, we wouldn't want to do that per se, and other countries wouldn't appreciate it, I think, if we did. On the other hand, I think other countries would quite appreciate the notion of the U.S. and China collaborating more closely together, and we're trying to do that. Um, I, I was in China with Secretary Kerry, and uh, he announced a, uh, a short uh, joint agreement um, that, uh, that includes the notion of, uh, of the U.S. and China collaborating uh, in the, uh, in essentially in the development of our post-2020 uh, plans. Um, Obviously, relative to the to the 2015 agreement, and uh, I think that's you know we'll we'll have to see how uh, how that collaborative effort uh, uh, plays out. But I'm very uh, I'm very hopeful about that. I think that's a really good thing. I mean, something that we that we proposed to the Chinese, and they were they were interested uh, and um, quite you know quite open to accepting it. So I think that that working together in what we're planning to do, working with them on what they're planning to do is all, all to the good. And so very active collaboration, very active working together with China, I think, is, is a very good idea. Going off in the corner to do our own climate, sort of overall climate agreement, that, not quite that. But building trust, developing some totally, leadership, that totally, sort of thing. Totally. Um, how about India? India is a little more complicated in terms of its governance. It's a messy democracy. It's yeah. an election year. Maybe not quite so much there. What, what about India in that regard? Well, India, so uh, two things. First of all, India is, is obviously very important, but we can't, it's important to keep track of the scale uh, of, of importance of countries with respect to emissions. So China at this point is something like 25% of global emissions. They're a lot bigger than us at this point. Uh, together, we're probably a little over 40%. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, India, I don't have the exact numbers, but they're probably in the range of three or four. So it's, it's, a, it's an order of magnitude difference between India and China. Okay, so that said, that doesn't mean India's not important. They're, they're, they're quite important. Uh, they are having elections now. I think that, uh, that we, have, uh, we have very cordial relations with India. There was uh, a period in, uh, in 2009-10 when India was a real leader in the climate negotiations and quite a progressive force. Um, they have been uh, not sort of pursuing quite that uh, that path uh, in the same way in in the uh, in the years since but but we have you know we have very uh, I think um, positive and you know and, and kind of cordial working relations with them uh, and uh, and I think when they come out of their election cycle they have a new government whichever party it is and and new people at the helm of their climate effort we will work closely with them I'm sure our guest today, Climate One, is Todd Stern, U.S. Special Envoy for Climate Change. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Mr. Ambassador, thank you for your service. I would imagine that it's um, difficult and perhaps somewhat embarrassing for you to go into these negotiations with a Congress that can't even decide that climate change is real and caused by humans. I don't envy that position. You also said that uh, the most important thing is to get action going on a national level. So my question to you is, would you be happy with and would it make your job easier if the U.S. were to pass a carbon tax, a 100% revenue-neutral carbon tax like the kind advocated by former Treasury and Secretary of State George Shultz and numerous other Republican economists, uh, that's progressively rising, revenue neutral, so families are happy, they get the money back, with border adjustments to induce, not force, but induce other countries for sound financial reason to pass their own tax. Um, thanks very much for the question. Um, so first of all, I, I do want to say that I don't ever feel embarrassed uh, about representing the United States. So um, certainly I get asked questions uh, about Congress. Um, I don't even get embarrassed about Congress. You know, I, I, I worked up there for several years before I went to work for President Clinton. So um, we have our challenges, but, um, but embarrassment is not, is not one of the things that I feel. So look, a price on carbon is an important thing. Uh, and a price on carbon is what President Obama uh, sought in the cap and trade legislation that uh, the Waxman Markey legislation that uh, that made it through one house but not the other house back in the 2009 and 10 period. Um, so uh, conceptually, I think that there's a lot of openness to a price on carbon. You're asking the particular uh, question about a carbon tax and revenue neutral and the various uh, elements that, that you included in it. And I guess I'm not going to comment on that one way or another, but but as a conceptual matter, a, a price on carbon uh, is a good thing. And that's something that, that, you know, that we sought at one point. Some other countries have put prices on carbon. Maybe you could talk before we go to the next question yeah. a little bit about other countries that are putting prices on well, carbon. Australia had a tax yeah. for a little while, and China's experimenting with cap and trade. Europe had a trading system that kind of went bust. Yeah, um, well, the, uh, the European trading system has had problems. Um, I hope it's not bust. It certainly has had problems, uh, and they're trying to fix. They're trying to fix it. I mean, the, fundamentally, the problems with Europe is if you have a cap and trade 
system and you have uh, and you miscalculate how many uh, how many allowances are out there, then like any other supply and demand situation, you drive the price down. So that that's essentially what happened uh, in Europe. China has I think seven pilot uh, cap and trade programs uh, at the city level that they're working on. So, you know, I think cap-and-trade obviously can work if you get it right. Um, uh, there's, you know, there's, there's lots of arguments that, uh, that, that, uh, that economists will make back and forth about the benefit of a, or, or policy people in general, about the benefits of, of cap-and-trade versus the benefits of a tax with cap-and-trade. You theoretically uh, know what your cap is that's fixed, and the thing that you're not sure about is your price. And in the case of a carbon tax, you know what your price is, but you're not sure what your cap is. Um, and you know there's good and valid debates about the you know the policy merits of both. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. You know, recently uh, Edward Snowden leaked that there was spying going on in Copenhagen on the delegates by the United States. Um, how has this damaged U.S. credibility? Were you aware of this? How are we going to fix it? Thanks. Oh, I most certainly was not aware of it. Um, so, uh, no. I, uh, I want to clarify, this was the U.S. was spying on climate negotiators? Is that what? Uh, yeah, okay. he, yeah. The gentleman is referring yeah. to a story that, that, uh, that, that was, uh, yes, that there was that kind of thing going on that was revealed in the Snowden papers or whatever we're calling mm-hmm. them. Um, so no, I mean that's that's not that isn't anything that we were that we were uh, focused on. Uh, Did you get grief about it? I haven't gotten any grief about it. Uh, I'm not sure. I think that came out. I feel like that came out recently enough that uh, it was it was certainly after the Warsaw the big Warsaw meeting at the end of the year. So I haven't uh, I haven't had grief about it yet, and I. I don't actually think there's going to be a lot of focus on that, but I, you know, I might be wrong. Let's have our next question for Todd Stern. Hi, Todd. Hi. Holly Kaufman. Treat Hi. to see you. Thank you for being here. My question is, how ambitious do you think uh, the next agreement will be, specifically in terms of greenhouse gas emissions by hopefully a certain date or a series of dates? Historically, usually countries are sitting around in a series of rooms trying to give away as little as possible. Will there be some kind of a goal as an organizing principle for companies to figure out how they will meet that and um, how much they can do? So I'm glad you asked the question because it occurs to me that that one really important feature of this agreement that we're negotiating hasn't come up in the discussion yet, so I should I should explain that. One of the elements of the agreement that where there is probably more consensus than most in this period, you know, as I said, in, in, in having been right in the middle of, the, of this four years, is the notion that the, that the structure of the agreement should be based on, on what is in the, the lingo is being called nationally determined commitments, which essentially means countries uh, make their own determination of what they're, of what they're going to do. Uh, with various uh, suggestions, I won't go into all the details just because of time, unless somebody wants me to. But um, to try to to try to uh, encourage and, and push uh, those uh, those uh, commitments to be uh, as robust as possible. But it's not the case, as was the case, for example, in Kyoto, where you're going to have countries sitting around a table trying to negotiate targets and timetables. And it's not because in Kyoto. 
and I was in Kyoto, I was part of this, that was, that was a three-way negotiation fundamentally between uh, the, uh, the US, Japan, and the EU. You get dozens and dozens and dozens of countries now. You couldn't possibly do that uh, now. So the notion of, uh, of national determined is key. I think that, you know, that what we do is going to be quite important. And I'm hopeful that what we do is going to be very strong. Uh, and what China does is going to be very important. And I, you know, I hope we can, uh, we can all you know, work together to try to make sure that the, that the Chinese uh, target is, uh, is strong. And, you know, and, then, uh, and I, I think that the, we sort of know already, at least notionally, what the EU is talking about, because they've already, they've already said they were planning on uh, something in the order of a 40% reduction below 1990 by 2030. They haven't submitted that, but they're talking about that internally. So I think that there's going to be, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that there'll, be, uh, that there'll be a set of targets from the main players that, that add up to something pretty significant. But, um, but, I, but I also don't pretend that it's going to be the last word on what we need to do. So it sounds like there's going to be agreement that people need to go on a diet, but how they lose that weight, diet, exercise, change their food, et cetera, it could be up to each country. Yeah. But we all got to shave some, uh, right. lose some weight. Let's have our next question. Thank you. I was pleased to hear you uh, reference uh, California's uh, cap-and-trade program and the work that's been going on here in the state for some time, where uh, the state has achieved a reduction of about 17% of its emissions since 1990. And um, uh, last November, the first compliance-grade forest carbon offsets credits traded in California's cap-and-trade program. And I wondered to what extent uh, that transaction, the role of uh, forest offsets in California, uh, uh, has any impact, if any, on the role of forests in the international agreement and the status of forests in that. And can I just ask you a question? Were, the, were those forest offsets domestic or were those purchased abroad? They're, they're only domestic. They're only allowed for project-scale activity within the United States. Let's just briefly describe what a forest offset is so that's. It's, it, some people might be familiar. Well, it's, uh, it, it, it's essentially uh, the idea. To, to, so trees are good things for many reasons, but they're also good for uh, as long as they're standing for climate change. And if you cut the tree down, then the carbon that, that has been stored in the tree gets released. So you, you want to avoid deforestation for climate reasons as well as all sorts of other reasons. Um, and you can, I mean, the issue of, of developing a system uh, where you can, where, where uh, countries whether it's Brazil or Indonesia or any, any other forested country, could sell credits essentially for preserving uh, forests that might otherwise be cut down. This is, a, this is a, an issue that's part of the discussion, has been part of the discussions for a long time. Uh, and uh, it's complicated. It's not, they're not close yet to a point where actual international uh, uh, carbon credits from forestry are ready to be sold, but there are a lot of people who have been working on it. I think to the extent that there is uh, some successful uh, kind of models there to look at, if there's some of that going on in California, and people could point to it and point to the way in which it's being done and can be done with integrity and can be done in a way that makes sure that um, that you know after the credit comes the trees aren't cut down five years later and things like that I think that could potentially be useful. We're talking about international climate negotiations with uh, Todd Stern. Let's have our next question on Climate One. The thing I fear the most about uh, 
these talks and things is it seems like from what I hear and what I read, they're very insulated from the systematic understanding of ecological systems. And I'm trying to understand the vision that is developing between the countries of where the world is going to go. I mean, I hear, oh, yeah, yay, trees, we, get to sa we can save some forests and things like that, but there's hardly ever anything said about the ocean, which very few of us actually spend time in. Uh, what is the developing vision what, what between is the, the countries? Developing vision. And I think I might partially interpret that, that some people have interpreted that biodiversity has been downgraded in some of the recent, uh, some of the recent talks. He, he mentioned oceans, one thing that we haven't talked about. Well, um, on, on oceans per se, I think oceans are, uh, are actually a source of, uh, of uh, a great deal of concern. They are uh, they were actually one of the actually many areas of focus in the Rio, not, this isn't climate now, but the, the Rio plus 20 um, talks that, that happened in, uh, uh, I guess that was 2012. Uh, and Secretary Kerry at the State Department uh, is um, is very focused on oceans and is going to the State Department is actually going to be doing an, an oceans conference. I think in the fall. I don't have the exact dates, but but it's been some. It's one of the first things that Secretary Kerry came in. I think his very first meeting with senior staff. He said he wanted to do an oceans conference. So it's it's been difficult to schedule, but that's going to happen. I think there was another part of the question about uh, negotiators not being uh, deeply steeped in the in um, in uh, the way ecological systems work. I'm sure that that's true, actually, with respect to many negotiators. Although I think uh, it is also true that on the teams, of, I mean, I would I wouldn't describe myself as an expert in that regard. But on the teams of people from certainly the, uh, any of the major countries. Uh, I think there are folks who are who are quite um, who are quite knowledgeable and expert uh, in those areas. And biodiversity, again, biodiversity per se is not. I mean, there's a different treaty that deals with biodiversity as a as a negotiating matter. Certainly, um, climate change has an effect on that. It could have a profound effect, so as it could on you know so many other things. Let's have our next question for Todd Stern, U.S. Climate Ambassador. Hello, my name is Nestor. I'm actually visiting from Los Angeles, and I'm here. Two-part question, very short, is uh, one being on technology transfers. What's the talk right now about that? I understand some, uh, like Germany, uh, doesn't quite like the idea of giving solar uh, technology to China, which they can make it much more cheaper and affordable. The second part is more about agriculture. I understand agriculture requires a lot of fertilizer, what have you, and a lot of uh, developing countries use that. So how is agriculture playing in the talks, or may play? Yeah, um, thank you for the questions. Uh, technology transfer is an issue of a lot of interest to, uh, to many developing countries. Uh, we played a big role, the US, in developing an idea uh, starting back in 2009, really, and it was then it was adopted in 2010 to create a technology center and network, um, which is meant to uh, to provide technology uh, assistance to developing countries in uh, in ways that you know relate to uh, to uh, dealing with climate change, and uh, that is going to be housed in uh, or 
kind of guided by, uh, by uh, UNEP, the UN Environment uh, Program. So I, I, think that it, I think it's important. I think we have tried uh, to be uh, quite, um, quite positive in, uh, in, uh, in, in, in working on that. Uh, on agriculture, um, agriculture is actually a big, big issue. You know, there's something like 30% of global emissions come from the land sector. That's a combination of forests and agriculture. We, we have uh, tried to make headway um, with some specific agriculture provisions uh, in the negotiations over the last few years and have uh, run into um, some um, blockages. So we're still, we're still working on that. There are a number of, we, are, we, are, we work with a number of other countries in, uh, in some uh, agricultural efforts, agricultural climate efforts that are kind of outside the convention itself. Uh, but uh, but it's an important issue, and I you know I don't have anything definitive to say about it other than that we're quite aware of it. Let's have our next question, Climate One. Welcome. Thank you, both uh, Ambassador Sterling. I have a, my name is Kenneth Fax. I'm aligned with a few international organizations: U.S., Brazil, China, and also with the uh, Silk Road Peace Institute. And it seems to me that there might be uh, more effective to contribute on the micro level within communities when you are working with. Uh, solutions, working data innovation, uh, collecting that data, getting the semantics and such. So what direction could you lead us in as far as uh, identifying the KPIs or key performance indicators for having uh, results in semantic solutions? Key performance indicators? How are you going to measure success and measure progress? Well, I, you know, I think that, um, that uh, the... The main thing at the level of the broad negotiations uh, is to uh, have countries uh, take on significant commitments. Uh, there's a whole uh, system of transparency that we proposed and, and negotiated in the context of the agreement in 2010. That will need to be amplified and carried forward into the new agreement. Uh, but that has to do with countries reporting on all of the things that they do, uh, also countries uh, reporting on assistance they give to others. So that whole system of transparency uh, based on reporting and then, and then a review of the reporting uh, is a quite critical part uh, of the agreement. I, so I, I think that countries are essentially reporting against their pledges, you know, against their commitments. Um, I don't know about... I don't know the specific kind of notions about key performance indicators beyond that. Yeah, sometimes more in, in companies. Let's have our last audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, Ambassador Stern. I'm Priscilla Imboden. I work uh, as a U.S. correspondent for Swiss Public Broadcasting. Mm -hmm. I have a question about something you said in the beginning of the talk where you mentioned that it might not be a binding uh, agreement that is, is, that is come to, but maybe another form of agreement that might not have to go through Congress. How likely do you think that will be to avoid a situation like we had in Kyoto where we have a president who signed the agreement but it was never ratified by the United States? Well, just, just, just I don't want to be misunderstood. I, I think this agreement will be legally binding uh, in, in some ways. I think it, it's not, uh, I'm gonna, I'll give you a concrete example so nobody's confused. You know, different countries put forward submissions proposing different ideas. New Zealand has proposed as an example uh, an agreement where there would be a legally binding commitment to put forward your commitment, uh, a legally binding uh, uh, agreement with respect to, uh, to some other aspects like 
reporting that I was just talking about and review and things like that. But the content of, well, they call it a schedule, so they, they, they say a legally binding commitment to put forward your schedule, but the content of the schedule in the New Zealand proposal would not be legally binding. There's still a kind of another variation on that which would say that much of the content might be legally binding at a domestic level even, uh, so it would be, you, would, you would put forward your laws and regulations and things like that. Uh, in, in the, but, but it would not be internationally legally binding. So there's all different variations on, on this. On the question of, of, of Congress, uh, it, it really is going to depend on precisely what the shape is because in some cases, absolutely, that it, it would be an agreement that would need to, need to go to, to Congress, and in some cases that might not be the case. But we just don't, it's, it's way too early to know yet. We have to wrap it up. I'd like to end by asking you, uh, what do you do to manage your own personal carbon footprint? And then what can people listening to this in the audience do uh, on something that seems so big? How can they walk out of here after listening to this and take a meaningful action themselves? Um, well, I drive a hybrid car, so I, uh, and I try to drive it to get the maximum amount of miles <laughs> possible. Uh, and... Um, you know, we have uh, good insulation and light bulbs and all of that sort of thing uh, in our house. So, um, uh, and I try to get my three boys to turn the lights off as much as possible. But, uh, but I uh, flying pro- you fly a lot, which is do, tough I, to avoid. I, yeah, I, you, you can't avoid it. Yeah, I do fly a lot. Um, actually, I would like to fly less. If anybody's got a good idea for how I can fly less, just you know, send me a note. Um, and, uh, what can people, an average person do? To, you know, they've, already, they've done those things. What, what could you do next? What could people in this room do? Well, next? so I, so I look. I think that there's the, just conceptually. There's, there, I would make, I'd make one point on this. The, the, the first is that certainly there's things you should, that it's great to do in, in, in your own lives. I would encourage people uh, to, you know, to buy a highly fuel efficient car and to get, uh, you know, the light bulbs are completely. They give you good light now, and, you get, and they're very they're very cost effective, cost efficient because you know you spend a little bit more up front, but they like they never burn out. They go on and on and on. So there are all sorts of things like that that you can do. But the big ticket is that that we've we've got to have a political system where our representatives uh, recognize that uh, that this is something that needs to be acted on, and uh, and so uh, and so our legislators. Uh, members of Congress uh, hearing the message that that voters care about this um, is uh, at some level uh, the biggest thing. So, um, so it's you know I think it's a combination of that and obviously some things that you can you know that you can do in your personal lives. We have to end it there. Change your lock bulbs and then go run for Congress. I think that's what we just heard. So uh, our thanks to Todd Stern, United States Special Envoy for Climate Change. I'm Greg Dalton. I'd like to thank our audience here in the room at the Commonwealth Club and online and on the air. Thanks for coming today to Climate One. Thanks, Greg. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Our producer is Jane Ann Chen. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is Andre Hurd and editor is Annie Chelsea. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. Mm-hmm.